Hi everyone, welcome to The Cranog. Today we have David, uh, me, Rebecca, Mila and a special guest from Into the Greenwood, we've got Rosie. Today we are going to be chatting about stories from the highlands and islands of Scotland and before we get started, if you would like to support the podcast and the work that we do, um, we now have a Ko-fi page so you can find that in the show notes below. This is a story set on the Isle of Isla, near the vastness of the countryside in the hillside areas, just past Estnish, in a small town with a name that's long been forgotten. But there lived a blacksmith. He was a very hard-working man and a true master of his craft. He'd often wake up early, get to work, and one morning as he was setting up shop, he heard a knocking at the door. He was shocked but surprised to see a fairy. They never dwelled this part of town, so it was strange for them to be about. When he inquired about her visit, she explained that she had a story to tell him and refused to leave until she could share it. Her story was more of a poem. And she said, So long as the water runs and the grass grows and the sun climbs in the sky, the tide is high and the birds are in the air, the son of the smith will be in Esknish. Confused, the blacksmith sent the fairy away and told her to stop wasting his time. The blacksmith did indeed have a son. He had a teenage boy, but he was at home, not in another part of the town. But one day, his son, his previously very healthy teenage son, became very ill. He stopped speaking, he became mostly bedbound, and most of his old self withered away. Not knowing what was wrong with him, the blacksmith did everything he could think of, but nothing was helping. And soon, he didn't really have much of the heart to do his work, and the family ends up with little money. One day, when he was in the workshop, an old man came in to see him and explained that what he was seeing, the boy, who he knew as his son, was not actually his son. It was actually a changeling. The day the fairy had visited, they'd stolen his son and replaced him. The fairy who told him the poem was there to distract him. To get his son back, the blacksmith was instructed by the old man to collect some broken eggshells from his chickens, fill them with water and lay them close together around the room where his son was. He must then light the bed on fire, with the idea being that the changeling will escape the fire because it won't be able to spread beyond the eggshells, be confined to the bed and the changeling will die. But the blacksmith was very confused, but he still did as he was instructed. And before he could even start the fire, the changeling suddenly started laughing. He knew he'd been found out and he exclaimed to the man that in his 800 years, he'd never seen an act so strange as filling the eggshells with water. Knowing what was coming next, the changeling quickly fled, escaping through the chimney into the night. In despair, the blacksmith went out in search of his son on the fairy hill. He'd taken with him a trusty knife to carve his way through the wilderness and a rooster for company, but also as a gift to the fairies, hoping they would return his son. Once deep inside the hillside, he discovered his son had become a slave to the fairies and whilst under their spell had been forced to become a blacksmith, work at the forge creating weapons for the fairies. As the fairy started coming towards them, the rooster became scared and started to fly, flapping his wings and making lots of noise. The sound echoed all around and it was so deafening that the fairies fled, leaving the blacksmith time to grab his son and escape back home. As they got further and further from the fairy hill, the spell slowly unwound and the blacksmith's son returned to normal. 
However, having worked for the fairies for so long, the skills were still ingrained in him. He'd become one of the finest blacksmiths on the island. He was able to forge knives and swords using skills that were unknown to man, and the things he created had previously been unseen. Together with his father, the family created weaponry and knives for many years, and they became famous for their craftsmanship. They lived well and spread the wealth and fortunes they'd made, and thankfully never hearing from the fairies again. Yay! A happy ending. I know! I actually know that tale, and I was just remembering as it was going on, the bit about the eggshells, and I was waiting and being like, is that the one with the eggshells? Because that's the part in the tale that always sticks out to me. It's like... (laughs) Just confuse the fairies. That's the way to get them. It reminds me of like you know when people at uni like prank their friends by filling dorms full of cups full of water. It just it feels like that's what he did. It, it must be the old fashioned version. There's some sort of superstition about not throwing away eggshells in case a witch uses it as a boat. Oh. Like that's that's a superstition that exists. I wonder if the eggshells in the water were a bigger thing than we realize. But yeah, in the modern oh. tale, well, in the tale now, it's just to confuse them. Yeah. Well, I think that was the same in the tale. I was having a look at who I saw it written by, and it was Reverend Thomas Patson. I think in a book from the late 1800s is what the version that I'd seen. And he was oh. the Reverend on I- Isla, um, and he'd written about it then. He'd said that at the book at the time, I don't, I've never been out to Isla to investigate, but he said the walls of the house where the Smith lived. So I th- I'm assuming that that the smith's son the one that became the, the kind of great blacksmith um is still standing um not far from the parish church of Killacoman on isla i'm guessing that's how you pronounce it and the the smith's the house is called conascal and apparently that was still there when the reverend wrote his book i don't know if it is still today because i think the reverend wrote his book about 130 140 years ago so that's so interesting need to look at that it was it was like a common thing with changelings though wasn't it that you had to like throw them on the fire to get rid of them wasn't it because it's all the stories about them going up the chimney yeah do you do you know about the murder of bridget cleary no so it's an irish it happened in ireland in like the late 70s no 1800s um and the whole like the sort of the story goes is that her husband genuinely believed that she was a changeling and it's like hard to it's kind of hard to tell whether he did or not but like basically she was acting too modern and then she got sick and it was like that where it was like oh she's definitely a changeling because she keeps going and visiting those stones and this and that and they they like him and another guy violently murdered her and then burned her to death so that's what they did and then in a way it's like if you believe him it's like really sad because supposedly he then went to the stones and sat and waited and he thought that his wife would come back on a white horse and she never does oh my god <laughs> it's harrowing yeah. yeah and especially because like there's a good chance he may have been like mentally ill or something yeah, might have not just been a superstition or an excuse. He might have like fully. The changeling that's yeah. always one that I've been more wary of because people will see things and people are like maybe that's not actually them, and it plays into a paranoia in a way in a in a way that a lot of other folklore doesn't really. Mm. Other ones are kind of warnings about things. This one has, 
could have darker undertones and an occasion does. I was just gonna say the um wasting away sounds like tuberculosis, like consumption. Um I don't have much to say about that other than it seems to crop up in a lot of folk tales. Um there was like a massive I know there was like a massive um I think in America, um sort of certain belief that tuberculosis was caused by vampires but except except they would someone would die of tuberculosis they'd get buried outside and then they thought that that person was crawling out of the grave every night to come and drain the people who were still living of their sort of lifeblood um that's the one that i know about but i don't know random note it also sounds like tuberculosis maybe it's <laughs> like that is quite a scary one for people back in the day because people would just like waste away yeah remind me why was the rooster in the story again it wasn't very clear for like from what i read it was kind of like companionship but also like an offering okay yeah because i remember when i read the original story as well the one that i'd read originally as well i don't think i fully got what the rooster was doing but it was good. It was in the illustration that Lindley did, so there clearly was the rooster there too. So. It's just a sacrificial yeah. friend. Yeah, just a chilling out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why you'd give the rooster, not a hen, because a hen could at least produce eggs. Yeah, and then you could break <laughs> them and scare off the fairies, you know? <laughs> I let I wrote out my little spiel um, on my lunch break at work, and I left it at work. So now I'm gonna try and do it off the cuff. If I like mess up, Rosie, you know the story. Chip, feel free yeah. to chip in. I'm gonna be doing Asipattle and the Mister Stirworm, which is an Arcadian folk tale. And if you want a kind of more in-depth analysis of it, I would recommend listening to Rosie and Kathy's episode Into the Greenwood on Asipattle and the Mester Stirworm. Um, it's got a lot more juicy analysis than this will have. Um, so I'm kind of going to give like an overview of the story and then talk a little bit about, um, like really briefly, because it's quite a long story, about the Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. Um, so the story begins in as all kind of fantasy the best fantasy stories do with a little farm boy just kicking about in his farmhouse Um, all of his brothers he's got like nine brothers or something help out his dad on the farm Um, but Asipattle just kind of lies by the fire and like spends his time like dreaming about being a a hero and um, he gets like covered in suit and he's got like one sister who he's a fan of and she's a fan of him but otherwise and all his brothers hate him because he doesn't help around the farm he just sits and like thinks about uh running off and being a hero um so anyway cut over to the kingdom where the king lives um <laughs> <laughs> the kingdom where the king lives <laughs> castle where the king lives uh there has been a problem with this big serpentine beast called the stirworm 
Um, and it's been causing havoc, it's been levelling cities, it's been eating people and like sinking boats and it has this horrible breath that like when it opens its mouth it kills everything in sight. Um, and it's just, it's been really giving him a hard time, you know. The king's wife tells him to go and see this wizard who's going to give him advice on how to keep the Mester Sturworm at bay and stop killing people. Um, and the wizard tells the king that in order to keep the Sturworm satisfied, he's got to feed it seven virgins uh, or seven maidens um, every Saturday morning at dawn. So the king's like, <laughs> so the king... <laughs> No, I was just thinking that's a major hangover breakfast there. <laughs> <laughs> so the king's like, sure, I'll do that. Um, so he does it and he does it for several weeks. But um, obviously people in the town are starting to get a little bit annoyed because their daughters keep getting sacrificed to this giant sea snake. Um, so they start to kind of be like, right, we don't really want to do this anymore can we stop? So the king goes back to the wizard and he's like, is there anything else we can do to like stop the the, the stirworm? And the wizard says, uh, I, yeah, um, to completely satisfy him, you have to feed him the loveliest maiden in the land, who just happens to be the king's daughter, the princess Gem de Lovely. Um, <laughs> this story is full <laughs> Of incredible names. Just wait till we hear about um, Asupal's horse. Um, so the king, you know, he was pretty happy to sacrifice seven random women every week. But, you know, the minute the wizard is like, it's going to be your daughter, he's kind of like, uh, okay. So he puts it off for a couple of weeks. And he's like, uh, I'm going to try and find a hero to save my daughter and kill the Mester Sturworm. So meanwhile, he's still sacrificing seven maidens every week. Um, but he's put out a call across the land to get a hero to um, save his his daughter. And obviously, Asipatl, our wannabe um, superhero, hears this. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go out and I'm going to save Jem the Lovely. Um, so he takes a bit of peat from his house and he also takes his dad's uh, horse who is called Teat Gun and um, Teat Gun just happens to be the fastest horse in the land. Um, The only way to make Teat Gun go as full speed is to blow through the thrapple of a goose and the thrapple is like the windpipe. Honk honk. (laughs) (laughs) It's really an underwhelming war cry. So Asipatl acquires the thrapple. Uh, he steals it from his dad's pocket because that's obviously where we all keep our goose windpipes. So he sets off um, across the land, but despite the fact that Teat Gun is the fastest horse it's like ever existed, um, it still takes about a week to get there. So he arrives on the morning of the day that the that the princess is due to be sacrificed, and. Uh, he is in a he gets in a boat and the the king is like to be fair to him he's a way to like try and fight the thing himself um doesn't discount the fact that he murdered several women uh, but he's a way to fight the master stirworm but as he paddle gets in there first he's in a boat and he he zooms into the 
monster's mouth um, and ends up inside the inside the creature's belly. Um, and he takes the peat that he took from home and he puts it into the Mester Stirworm's liver, which is like really oily. Um, and he lights it on fire and the Mester Stirworm is like, owie, and starts like thrashing about um, and Asipatl gets flung out in the process. The Mester Stirworm starts thrashing about as it's dying and as it's doing that, it drops uh, some of its teeth, which become the Orkney Isles. And as it's thrashing, it also breaks uh, Finland and Norway up. And then it eventually curls up and it dies and its body becomes Iceland. And then we get a happily ever after. Asipatl gets to marry the princess. And I forgot to say earlier, but the king's like reward for saving his daughter and um, destroying the monster was that... Um, the hero would get to be the heir to his kingdom and would get the king's magic, uh, like legendary sword, Snickersnack. I want to say it's something like that. Snickersnapper. Snicker, Snickersnapper. Uh, <laughs> something along those lines. He gets a Snickers bar if he kills the one. <laughs> um, as well as getting to marry the princess. Um, so all of this happens, but there's also a last minute plot twist because it turns out that the queen um, is actually dating the um, the wizard that the king saw. The, I know, it's like EastEnders moment um, that the, the king sought um, his advice from. And she was the reason why like the wizard was like, oh, you have to sacrifice your daughter. So um, Asipatl kills the wizard and the queen gets uh, cast away. She she beca- she goes into exile and yeah, then Asipatl marries Jem de Lovely and uh, then all his siblings are like, please forgive me and he forgives them and then his sister becomes like a lady in waiting and it's all very cute. How did he fall out with his family again? Oh, just because he sat and did like absolutely nothing. Oh, I nothing. remember now. <laughs> to be honest, kind of valid, but um, anyway, um, yeah. So, like, I've always kind of associated that story with the Jabberwocky, um, the poem by Lewis Carroll, because, like, I mean, first of all, they're both full of ridiculous words. The Jabberwocky is, it, it's like an epic poem told through like ridiculous made up words um but also the the sword snickersnacker or whatever it is in asipatl and the master stirworm gets a kind of like a cameo in um the jabberwocky the jabberwocky is essentially like i say an epic poem um about a hero whose dad tells him about this horrible beast and he goes off and kills the beast so the main character from the jabberwocky um, has a sword called the Vorpal Sword and there's a line that says one two one two and through and through the Vorpal Blade went snicker snack and I was like snicker snacker <laughs> what, was that your big like? Was that, 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 was that, big was that the big conspiracy? <laughs> that's the big conspiracy also the fact that like all of the names are ridiculous like Teat Gun Assy Paddle what else have we got? Gem de Lovely. Gem de Lovely. Yeah, so that that's my bit. They sound a bit Harry Potter-esque, those names, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a few quick queries. Okay. 
So, how did he get the peat in his liver? I think Assy Patel just kind of shoved it in. What, like through the skin or down the. Th- well, no, because mind you, he got. He, he, like, oh, was this after he's chopped? Oh, he was inside him. Yeah, he was And in the then boat he was able the... to just do a little bit of an, an internal autopsy. Yeah, basically. Find the location. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Uh, what was he, g- he gave the, the thing really bad heartburn, basically. Cool. I had others, but I think that's. Cleared so, it up. Clear, cleared it up. <laughs> It reminds me of a few stories, not the Jabberwocky, but you know, hats off to you for that. Um, <laughs> well, for me, do you remember the sea witch tale that I told? Yeah. It's a ridiculously long story with about five different stories in it. Yeah. It reminded me of a chapter of that with the one where the the sea, the sea monster was eating all the maidens, yeah. and then the, eventually the king's one was the one called down to be killed, and the the king asked for someone to go down and save them, and this guy came in and his special horse yeah. and big black steed and saved the day. And it really is like the meaning of you can dish it out, but you can't take it. Like <laughs> the other tale that came to mind was if you remember the oh worm of Linton, and that one they stab flaming peat into the mm. the the wormy dragon thing and that's what kills them as well yeah maybe worms and dragons back then had very flammable livers and that's what <laughs> they were just alcoholics same thing with the maidens though you'd sort of think like after a few weeks and people start catching on what's going on they'd be holding like mass weddings <laughs> every saturday <laughs> I was just gonna say that I kind of hate him. Um, <laughs> so, because his name means like he who plays in the ashes or something like that, I christened him Cinder Chad. And <laughs> um, and I just kind of hate him as a person because he's just got the energy of someone who's like, while you guys were working the farm and looking after me, I studied the lore. And then he like goes off and actually does it, and it's like, that's not how it's meant to work. What an exquisite nickname. And I want to know where the names um, Snicker Snacker and Jem the Lovely come from. Antique gun. And that one could be from some form of strange Gallicness. Please explain to me where you think Teakgun came from. Oh, oh, apparently, apparently, I looked this up and I'm like remembering from back when we covered it. But I think it's something to do with, like, it's got some kind of nice meaning, like the morning dew or like the morning light or something. It means something nice. Hang on, hang on. We can find out what this means. Gem de Lovely to me just sounds like someone saying like, "Oh, that's Gem de Lovely." And it's like, also definitely not what her last name was because, like, what kind of king in an island of Scotland <laughs> back then had like a last name like was it Macdonald McGregor or any of these kind of things? No, it was de Lovely. Oh no 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 the no, king de Lovely. no no no! Her name isn't Gem. Her name is Gem de Lovely. Oh okay, that's her first name. Yeah, her fir- that- her entire first name is Gem de Lovely. She's Gem de Lovely McGregor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So kind of a Dewey style thing. I didn't know there was a word for that and I didn't know it was Teak Gong. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I think we've said that word enough for a show. <laughs> Possibly for a few.
So I went for The Fiddlers of Tom Nahiri. Um, and I found a nice version by Ruri McLean and he he put some little details in it that were like I thought kind of made it and were really nice so I included them in my sort of paraphrasing but yeah so <laughs> it starts um, a long time ago naturally with two fiddlers who are struggling to make ends meet during a hard year so they head to Inverness to busk and they set themselves up on the wooden bridge that kind of straddles the river and they play all day long but nothing really comes of it and you know just things aren't good anywhere so no one has any money to give them and they're just about to give up and go home when a wee man dressed all in green approaches them and he asks if they want to come and play for a special crowd of people who are going to give them all the money that they could possibly need. And they pretty much jump at the chance. They don't think this is weird. But um, as the wee man is leading them away, he calls them by their names and they're sort of like, huh, didn't tell him our name, but I'm sure it's fine. And they follow him all the way out of the city and they pass kind of, these little thatched houses on the outskirts and then out into the countryside until they come to a grassy hill called Tom Nahiri. They follow, him, they follow him up the hill and then he stops and he stamps his foot and the ground just opens up into this huge doorway and they go through and it's just this massive grand hall just all illuminated by bright lights like kind of brighter than the two fiddlers have ever seen before. And beneath the lights is kind of milling a crowd of little people all kind of gathered around the tables. And the tables are covered in like food and drink more than they've probably ever seen in their lives. And so uh, the little people invite the fiddlers to eat and drink their fill. And when, and when they've done that, they then have to play for the dancing. So... The fiddlers eat and they drink and when they can't eat anymore they take up their fiddles and they play basically all night. They've never seen better dancers than these fairies because that's what they are, they're fairies. And the entire time that they're playing their bows don't need any rosin, their fiddles never need tuning, everything just works perfectly. So then finally the wee man comes back and he tells them it's time for them to go because the sun is about to rise. And he ushers, them there. he ushers them out of the hall and he gives them two massive bags of gold. And they thank him profusely and one of them says, blessings of God upon you. And at the moment he says the word God, the little man and the door in the hill just vanish. And there's just grass left behind. So then they're kind of like, huh, that was weird. And they keep walking and head their way back to Inverness. But as they approach the city, they sort of realise it's not the way they left it. The wee, like, thatched houses they saw before are now made of stone, and they have roofs of slate, and then the people around them are all dressed in really strange clothes that they don't recognise. And also the wooden bridge that they played on just the day before is now made of stone. So they try to stop people in the street and ask what happened, 
but everyone's just kind of really confused. They're like, it's been this way for ages. It's always been stone. The houses have always been like slate roofed. I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, oh, uh oh. So they hurry home to their wives and children, but they find that nothing in their hometown is the same either. And then they decide the best course of action uh, is to probably talk to a holy man. So they go to the church and it's kind of there that their worst fears are confirmed because in the kirkyard, all in a line, are the graves bearing the names of their children who it seemed had died many years ago. So then they realise that what had felt like a night in the fairy world must have been a hundred years of theirs. Stricken with grief, they enter the church where the minister is giving a sermon and they just kind of watch wordlessly waiting for him to finish. But as the minister speaks the word God, the two men disappear into two piles of dust. And that's the end. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> that is the most amazing story that I've ever heard. You, you dumb little fiddlers. Don't go in the fairy hill. Come on now. Come on. <laughs> but like, see when you start to realise that um, it's in the future and like, you know, the fa- fairy time has done its thing. I was thinking along the lines of... Um, the fairies of Merlin's Crag, where, like, he comes home and his kids have grown up, but, like, they're still there and his wife's still there, but no, the... (laughs) Literally gravestones with his children's names on them. Wow. I don't know whether that's a lot worse, though, because, like, at least in that one, like, they've lived a life, they've got away with it. With the Merlin, the fairies of Merlin's Crag, where he had to go, like, justify to all his children, no, I've not ran off for, like, the last 30, 40 years. I was just taken by the fairies, like... That's true. You, you realise how much you're missing it. Well, but I suppose you can still reclaim a bit, whereas at least... Yeah. Uh, but the other ones, they're just dead, so, yeah. Didn't have to live with it long, though, because they turned into dust. Yeah, so that's true. I suppose true. that's a... That's true, yeah. That's a plus of the situation. People seem to get very different deals out of going to see the fairies. Like, these ones, 100 years in the future, turn to dust. Merlin's Crag, it's in the future, but he's fine. Mm-hmm. Thomas the Rhymer, goes away, it's well in the future, but he gets the gift of foresight and everything like that. Is that he... a good or a bad thing, though? Well, that was the kind of thing. It was mm. seen as a curse because he could never tell a lie, but yeah. it meant he could f- tell the future and things, so it was a... probably a bit of a balance. Yeah. I also like the subtle, like, nod to the power of names. Like, at the start, when the fairy, like, calls them by their name, and they're like, oh, mm. we-, we never gave you the name. And usually it's, like, knowing, you know, finding out a concealed name giving you the power but just the fairy knowing the name i don't know if i missed it but how is it that so in two moments in the story when the name of god was uttered like bad things happened so like initially they were taken out of the spell of the fairies and were back in kind of their land and then the second time was when they turned to dust i think it's because um so there's this story that um I think it's partly because as Christianity melds with fairy stories, fairies start to get aligned with demons more. And there's this story um, that goes kind of like when the angels all like when the angels betray God, he opens the doors of heaven to kind of let them all fall out. And it's kind of a humorous story because there's an angel who's like what are you doing? Every, you're just like, everyone is falling out of heaven. You have to close the doors. So he closes the doors and then the fairies that were, well, the angels that were in the air 
at the moment that the doors close become kind of air spirits, the ones that were on earth become normal fairies and the ones that had fallen all the way down to hell become demons. So in that sense, I think it's supposed to be that when the word of God is uttered, the fairies sort of power to be there um, is kind of like, it's like they're banished. And then the fiddlers having been changed by this journey in fairy, they themselves can now also no longer abide the word like God's name without just crumbling to dust. I think a lot of that idea of like the the fallen angel aspect of um, fairies was around since the kind of early writing down of it with like Robert Kirk and people like that that were kind of the early folklorists who mm. we went and saw the grave of. He wrote about the idea of them being kind of fallen angels and of the kind of different planes and kind of things as yeah. kind of Rosie had mentioned. So, but it's interesting the way that the Christianity has affected fairies to bring it within the Christian faith. One of the things I noticed the other day there when I was reading about that kind of thing actually was when I was reading about Beltane on Sky, how they celebrated it there, it mentioned that they would set aside anything of iron and they wouldn't wear or carry iron for the day. Whereas nowadays iron is traditionally seen as something that would ward off fairies and kelpies and all these kind of pagan creatures. So I wonder if maybe iron at that point had they weren't carrying it for the purposes of it being a pagan celebration. Yeah, I had a couple of thoughts about like maybe why this story resonates with people. Um, so like a general take, I feel like it kind of speaks to the experience of going on a transformative journey that changes you as a person. And when you return to a familiar place, you just don't fit in. Every, like you can't fit in anymore and everything's different and you just can't ever go back to the way things were before. There's that. And then I kind of feel like more recently it a little bit speaks to maybe the experience that people have been having for like maybe since the Industrial Revolution, maybe forever, but I think aggressively like right now as well, where it feels like the world is just changing so fast that you can't keep up and the skills you learned in childhood and your younger years aren't relevant anymore. And it just like, you're kind of looking around like what happened and it's just <laughs> just like it the whole like fairy time and aging thing kind of reminds me of lockdown in a way i heard lockdown when i was 22 and then covid was only really properly over by the time i was 25 so i like you know a lot of us moved from our like mid-20s to uh, sorry our early 20s to our mid-20s slash late 20s through the pandemic and it was like that entire time was lost. That just kind of like that's kind of what it reminded me of. Yeah. Not not saying the fairies are to blame for the pandemic. Legends tell of a warrior queen on Sky who, over two thousand years ago, trained warriors revered the world over. Thought to be the daughter of the King of Scythia, the ruler of a vast empire which extended across swathes of modern Eastern Europe and Asia, Skaha was from a mighty lineage. Her strength in battle, though, could be matched by none in her father's court, nor any in her conquests across Europe. Through a tale, much of which was lost in time, Skaha became a queen in her own right, and while her dominion was markedly smaller than that of her father's, her role was far greater. 
After her death, she became heralded as a Celtic goddess responsible for guiding the dead to Terranog, the Celtic afterlife. But the tale I shall tell is not of her godly status or her lengthy journey, but is instead of the warrior school she ran in particularly one and particularly one especially talented participant. So that's the brief introduction to Skaha, the main character in this tale. Uh, Skaha was a brilliant warrior queen on uh, one of the peninsulas on the Isle of Skye, well, reputedly. Uh, the area where she had her warrior school is now known as Donskia Castle, or something along those lines, and is thought to be about a 13th century castle, but prior to that being there, there was thought to be a, a vitrified hill fort, which is thought to be previously quite unique to Scotland, but they've found a couple in Europe now. But it's a type of hill fort built by stacking rocks around the parameter, and then set in very long burning hot fires in the middle that will melt the rocks into each other to create a solid fortress. Um, I could talk longer about vitrified hill forts because they're a passion of mine, but it's not very folklore so we'll move back on to the story. Um, in this particular st story, Skaha is having a, a quite a normal day at her warrior school, uh, training some of the most legendary warriors in the land. Um, her daughter, not least amongst them, who was almost the equal of Skaha, although not quite. On this day, they sighted someone coming towards the castle in the distance, uh, clearly armed for battle, carrying a sword on their back, well equipped with their armour. They came up to the gates and were challenged by Skaha's warriors. And as they fought briefly, the, the intruder shouted out, this is not what I'm looking for. I want to challenge to a duel Skaha herself. Now, Skaha not being much one for, for quick to fight and thinking you'd have to be deserving first. She didn't want every Tom, Dick and Harry off the street or Tom, Jock and Jimmy off the street coming and challenge her to a duel. No, he would have to uh, prove to her that he had the might of what it took. And despite her having held of her, heard of him, because it was none other than Cahoolan, the great hero of Irish legend, she thought to have a challenge with me, you must first fight my warriors. Cahoolan, seeing no other way about it, decided he would have to go along with what Skaha wanted in order to get the duel, for she was known as the best warrior in the land, and he wanted that title. So he went to work, and one by one through the day, he slowly defeated each of Skaha's warriors until the dawn, until the evening set in, and the sun dipped below the horizon and he defeated the final of the warriors. Skaha is not a sore loser, so congratulated him well and invited him to feast with her in celebration of his great achievements. There was much to eat, there was deer and a dozen rabbits which Skaha hunted the earlier, that, earlier that day. And they ate well and great merriment and stories between them and that went long into the night until they thought in the early hours of the morning they better get some sleep because there would be a duel the next day. So they arose the next day and Cahoolan came, challenged Skaha to the duel. Skaha said, oh, not not quite. There's, there's one you've yet to defeat. And that was her daughter. Now her daughter was no simple warrior like these. No, she had been dueling since she was the age of three. She knew what she was doing. And so she went to battle with, with Cahoolan. 
and back and forward they went and this one lasted oh, probably four or five times the length of those with the other warriors the day before but Cahoon was successful again and, and defeated Skaha's daughter now that would make anybody else a little bit worried setting them a bit on edge but Skaha still not concerned in the slightest she was dressed for battle she had her legendary sword and she wasn't phased in the slightest so when Cahoon came to her and asked for the jewel that he had been promised should he fight the warriors then should he fight her daughter she agreed and they set about it but not before they first sat down for lunch because he'd had a busy morning he needed a snack so they sat and they, they ate for an hour or so and it wasn't quite like the night before there was not such merriment there was a small laugh and a smile and agreement that he'd done well that morning but clearly the mind was on the task at that point so the afternoon came they went out and they set to work back and forward Cahoolan's vast blows and strength fighting against the agility and skill of Skaha back and forward they went and the day drew on and on hours passed and it came to evening and they were still fighting neither seeming to gain the other hand now Skaha's daughter had got a bit fed up by this point she's seen that they were a perfect fit for each other they should just get on and run the school together they should both be the joint heroes of legend but no they back and forward on and on she likened them to school children having a bicker over something so she thought you know what i'll get to dinner and maybe that'll lure them to to come and have some food they're both hungry people so she set about and she cooked a boar and rabbit and salmon nothing was luring them and then she remembered the night before when they'd been having a conversation about food they'd both remember uh, they both reminisced on how much they loved venison stuffed with hazelnuts. So that, well, that's what we'll have to do. And she sent the warriors and out to hunt the venison. She sent the cooks out to get the hazelnuts, came together, and a few hours later they had ready for them roasted venison. And the scent of it drifted out on the battlefield because Skaha's daughter had carefully placed the, the cooking fire very close to where they were fighting knowing that she could lure them in with the promise of a good dinner. And right she was. Eventually they both decided they were evenly matched, and so laid down their arms and ate a big feast. And over that feast they decided that they would run the warrior school together, and that they would both be equal legends in history, with Cthulhuun respecting Skaha as the queen that she was of the Isle, and her likewise as him as a hero of Irish legend. And the daughter got what she wanted, which always goes quite well. And that's our story of Skaha and her warrior school. And the sad thing is that they did never become equal in legend. Because everyone knows about Cahoolan and no one knows about Skaha. Yeah, I need to bring up um, back like years ago when I was doing my dissertation. I was like, I looked a little bit about... Um, the like myth in which um, Cahoolan dies and he basically dies because um, he refuses help from a goddess and then because he refuses her help she's offended and so she like curses him and he dies but it's like he I was reading like the original texts and he pretty much says I don't need a woman's help I don't and I at the time I was like what 
what about <laughs> what about Scar? <laughs> How rude! It goes to show sometimes that like it feels like the text of folklore says one thing, but the actual evidence of the because I feel like the text was sort of that particular text had been like copied down by monks, so I feel like that text was saying we don't respect women, but when you look at the characters that exist in folklore and the other stories, it, that kind of says that we do. That warrior school one, though, with Cthulhu being in it specifically, like, Skaha was known for, well, one, I think, being actually a semi-historical figure, yeah, and two, for being this Celtic goddess character. Um, but I think within the context of that story in Cthulhu there, I think that came from the Austrian, or was mentioned mm-hmm. briefly in it, and that is now kind of largely regarded to be a kind of a figment of the 17th century writer's imagination or the 18th century writers rather than actually based on the historical mm. text that he said it was. That's kind of disputed, but whether it's maybe more his creation at the time and maybe the monk's scholarly approaches were more reflective of the actual early lore, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. But it was interesting going to see the castle itself because what's there now is quite impressive. Like, it is down to a few metres high walls and patches, but it was quite an adventure because yeah. it's it's not on its own separate island, but there's a, a dip that goes in between the very peninsula that it's on and the mainland of maybe a couple of metres across yeah. and a few metres deep. And there's a stone bridge that once went across it, but now all that's left of the stone bridge is either side of it and the actual flat bit to walk across has fallen down so we were edging along the very like edges of this bridge across and holding on the walls and staying on to like the kind of 10 centimeter wide bit as we went across it to get on to the castle Um, and it was quite and there was however there was a sheep up there we have no idea how it got there i think it's skaha Skaha. (laughs) it it did have a very regal look to it doesn't it yeah it was just watching us as we were like poking about this game. It, like, it was like, you shouldn't be here. Like, get off my castle. And then it posed, like, in a very, like, majestic way. Yeah. Skaha. But it was quite an impressive fort. It was. That was there. It was not, it wasn't very big, but you could see how it would be an impressive defensive yeah. stronghold. And then the kind of indications of the outline of what it would have been before the 13th century fort that's on it now. Yeah. Um, that they think there was earlier inhabitants, as I say, the vitrified hill fort, and they think possibly even something before that. Uh, so long been a period of inhabitation. Um, it's a bit strange because it's not the easiest to get up to. <laughs> yeah. But, or the best bogs. land for farming around about it, really, either. Yeah, it was bog land, basically. Yeah. Um, see, in the story, does it specify, because I missed the start of it, um, Ska's Warrior School? Is that just warriors in general, or is it like a, almost like a kind of um, Diana Artemis situation where it's like women, like a kind of women's society type I don't thing? No, I don't think it mentioned in the original tales whether it was a women only style one or whether it was generally warriors. Because they were accepting of the idea of Cahill and Joyner, it didn't seem like it was like. Yeah. An irregularity. But I don't know. I don't think I wrote about it in my rendition, but I don't think it mentioned in the original. 
think it was just a matriarchal yeah group but because I think, I think the Celts or the Picts or maybe both were matriarchal weren't they I think the Celts I don't think the yeah. Picts were yeah I remember I remember back in school when we were studying classics we learned that um the older women in Celtic society generally trained the young warriors. I don't, you know, like, obviously that's like 10 years ago now and not a lot is known about them that isn't from, like, Roman sources and all this kind of thing. So I don't want to, like, go out and definitively say that's what happened, but even if that was a thing that was said at one point, maybe, like, this story is influenced by that, like, notion of the Celts. Well, as well as Gahai being the kind of more elder of the society, educating the yeah. USB, the male or female, and being the ways of the warrior, yeah. would then seem to be in keeping with what we think we know, perhaps, about the Celtic society, or at least what the Romans depicted of it. Yeah. It also makes me wonder, do we have any like folktales off the top of our head that pass the Be- uh, Bechdel test? Yes. No. Um, I, I don't know if it counts uh, because it does that thing with fairy tales where the characters aren't properly named. But um, Rashi Coates, in Rashi Coates, she, um, she talks to like henwives a few, like, a few times. Sometimes it might be about a man though. But it's about getting out of marriage. In Kate Crackernuts, the evil stepmother, goes and talks to a henwife a bunch of times about trying to get rid of Kate and also talks to Kate about trying to stop her from eating and stuff so that the spell works. Uh, in Wapiti's story, the good wife of Kittle, whatever it's called, <laughs> talks to Wapiti's story. But again, like the good wife isn't named and the henwives aren't named, but the evil stepmother's not. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Kofi page, which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.